Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome, everyone, to Project Management Office Hours, the number one live project management radio show in the U.S., broadcasting to you today from the Phoenix Business Radio X studio in Tempe, Arizona. I'm your host, Joe Puzz, PMO Joe, and for the next hour, we'll be talking project management and agile and product and other things with our special guest today. also want to say thank you to our sponsors, the PMO Squad. The PMO Squad is home to the purpose-driven PMO. If you're looking for a new or improved PMO and are struggling, you probably do not have a well-defined purpose. Contact the PMO Squad at www.thepmosquad.com to learn more about their purpose-driven PMO and the proprietary PMO approach. So before we get started with our special guest today, I also wanted to mention for our frequent listeners, you know that we're very active in the veterans community and assisting veterans with their transition into civilian project management careers. Along with our partners, Vets to PM, we've built this fantastic veterans mentoring program that's free and available to veterans to get mentoring from professional project managers. Today, uh, we're actually very proud to announce we have an additional partnership in place with IIL, the International Institute for Learning. They have active as of today a online conference, their Leadership and Innovation 2019 online conference. It runs from today through June 9th. Registration is $189 for that. But through our partnership with our veterans organization, they're giving that free to all veterans. So if you are a veteran, you can go out to www.iil.com, register for the Leadership and Innovation 2019 online conference and use code VETMENT, V-E-T-M-E-N-T, and your access to this online conference to keynote speakers, content, PDUs is completely free. So super excited to have an opportunity to bring that to veterans. For our non-veterans out there, IIL has also helped us with that, and they are offering $20 off the cost by using code V-E-T-S-I-I-L, Vets I-I-L. So super excited about that. Thank you to Vets to PM, our partner in our mentoring program, and also, of course, special thanks to IIL for making this available to all the veterans out there. All right, so let's get into our show. Uh, we are live, and today we have great evidence of being live. We were scheduled to have two fantastic leaders with us uh, this morning. Danielle Krop is with us here in studio, and Dana Brownlee is remote and working, trying to make a connection. So we may be able to connect to Dana during the show. If not, of course, we'll work with her to get her rescheduled. So for everybody tuning in, listening for Dana, uh, Bear with us. We're working through some technical challenges. So with that, I uh, also want to remind everybody that we are live, of course, so you can use hashtag PMOJoe to tweet in any questions. We don't take calls, but we do take tweets. So if you have a question for myself or for Dana or Danielle, please tweet in hashtag PMOJoe, and we'll get to those on air. So thank you, Danielle Krop, for joining us. Uh, I want to give you a second to say hello to everybody and introduce yourself. Well, thank you for having me. So I'm Danielle Kropp, and I work at American Express as an executive in product management. Um, and been working over the last few years a lot on agile transformation, which I'm excited to talk to you guys about today. And I have a very unusual path. I think that's actually quite common in product management. Started out actually with an uh, undergraduate degree in forestry. Oh, Wow. Yeah. So, you know, thought I would be, you know, surveying birds in the woods. Um, and here we are in the desert, too. And that, in your, yeah, your that, didn't, that didn't quite uh, go that direction. So I had a little bit of a, a turn in there to go to a master's degree in statistics. So I wanted to make better decisions about the environment. So I got went back, got a degree in statistics. While I was doing that, I was actually doing a job in graphic design. So to say I'm a little eclectic is, yeah. is an understatement. Great diverse background. Um, my husband was also getting his degree in computer science, 
and we had to stay put where we were at the time. And uh, I got a job at a credit card company and found that it was really, the data was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Like the problems were really interesting and just took a moment to say like, well, if I'm going to be in credit card industry, where do I really want to be? Yeah. And that's when I sought out American Express because I was like, if I'm going to work at a credit card company, I'm going to work at the best credit card company in the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Sure. Makes sense. That's fantastic. And and such a great diverse background to be able to bring to them to get experiences beyond perhaps what their normal mindset was for their employee set, right? To have you come in and work with them. I love that. We first met at uh, an event here locally in Phoenix that PMI, uh, the local Phoenix chapter, put on called Agile Up. And that's where I heard your your presentation on the Agile transformation at American Express and thought, wow, what a great topic for our show. We've had Dmitry Ponomonorov, who was on, uh, also at the Agile Up. He was on our show and Warwick Pond was on our show. So all three speakers during Agile Up had actually either been a guest or now with you are all guests. But you told a great story about how the challenge to get through such a large organization to make this happen. Can you kind of just walk us through this, the journey that you had to go through with Agile Transformation at Amex? Um, yes, absolutely. So I think that we were, you know, we started off from the perspective of funding projects, right, in particular systems and delivering on those project by project. So to move to Agile required, you know, really having a systems thinking perspective and the other, the other aspect of it was bringing that customer lens as well. So bringing those two things together, then you have to figure out how, you, how you're going to organize now. Because you can't then organize just simply by pro- project by project and system by system. You need to think of it end to end about how do you put everybody together um, to deliver. So we started with small pieces of Agile. We just started like within the teams themselves. And then we realized that we were just really weren't delivering from a customer perspective. And in, a, in, in the way we really wanted to. So we decided to take on, you know, look at other options for Agile, um, scaled Agile, other, other Agile frameworks, and think through how could we put things together in a different way, make teams of teams mm-hmm. so we could deliver for the customer instead of just for the particular system, right? So that's, it's been a very challenging but very rewarding movement forward at Amex to get from this project-based work to this, how do I think from a systems and a customer perspective and or organize around that? Yeah, one of the items of feedback we've had on our show is great discussions, fantastic guests. Is there an opportunity during any shows to actually talk about where it happened, right? where it worked you know, or, or didn't work and what were the challenges? So Amex obviously is a giant company. What were some of the challenges that you encountered as you were going through this? I think that they, you know, like in in our particular use case, which is in in the area of acquisitions at American Express, we were, you know, so credit card application experiences is for in the layman's terms, right? Mm-hmm. So we're trying to make sure that we can really build a beautiful experience end to end for our customers. Um, and we started with a lot of different systems, kind of delivering on that experience, but not really seeing the full picture. Um, I likened it to you know, a, a very um, sad looking bicycle, right? With lots of different pieces and just not very well engineered. All And again, it works, but wasn't streamlined, mm-hmm. right? And so we wanted to like give people the perspective. So I think the first thing that we had to do is get everybody who kind of was in the, you know, who was essential to working through that problem and making that a beautiful experience in the room. So we needed to do a, what was called a value stream workshop. Sure. So we sat down and we put everyone in the room and we said, this is how our customer experiences this. And this is how our shareholders make money from this. And by helping people to understand those two perspectives and layering on the systems knowledge that most of the people in the room already had, then we were able to to really have some breakthrough moments and those aha moments of, we're not doing this right. Yeah. And that was essential, right? Getting people to the table and Showing them the vision of what it is today and what it could be in the future, I think, is the most important step. Was there a uh, cultural challenge as well? Again, because, again, you're you're introducing something new into the organization, a new way of thinking, a new way of organizing the, the skills and talents of your resources. What did you encounter challenge-wise from that? 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that it's the the challenges from a cultural perspective that people are used to when we when we're organizing this way. We have actually three different areas of the business that are coming together. So you got marketing. We are uh, again live radio, so we're <laughs> we're getting joined by Dana Brownlee right now. So we'll come to Dana in a moment to get her introduced, uh, but we'll we'll finish up on this thought here with Danielle before we switch over. Okay, so um, the cultural challenge really was that this is going to be a virtual organization that we were putting together. So it puts together marketing, risk, and servicing organizations, which actually sit in three different areas of our business entirely and roll up. They don't meet until they get to our CEO, right? So actually putting these in a team of teams, a virtual team of teams, gotcha. right, was a very big mind shift, right? It was, it was like, wait a second, I'm, I'm both part of my real organization and part of this virtual organization. Um, and we're still working through some of those cultural challenges. Um, we have a name for this organization. We call it Portico. So I still, we still have moments in which I have to remind people, you're part of Portico first, and then part of your line of business second, um, because your what your day to day job is actually delivering on on this experience, this beautiful entryway experience. Yeah, Portico. Yeah, um, for our customers, um, and so we're still working through some of those cultural. I mean, it's just a big mindset shift to go from thinking your organizational hierarchy to a virtual organization, a tribe, so to speak. Yeah. And, and again, having sat through the Agile Up discussion that you had led on this, I, I've got some of the additional detail behind that. So we'll we'll continue this discussion as we keep going. But Dana, I wanted to say hello to you and thank you for working through with us on all the technical challenges. It's glad to have you join us. I am so appreciative. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, the technical demons were on me today, but I'm just so glad to be here. Well, that's right. Again, it's just proof positive that this isn't a podcast. This is live radio. So for those who've questioned along the way, we have yet another example. This isn't our first uh, technical challenge we've had. I think it's number two, but we're glad to have you. So let's give you a minute to introduce yourself to the listeners and a little bit about you and professionalism matters and what you have going on. Sure, sure. Thanks so much again. And again, thanks for having me. So my name is Dana Brownlee, and I'm the president of Professionalism Matters. I started the training company, I can't believe, 16 years ago, um, but it's been 16 years. And I provide professional development training. And one of my key areas is project management and other areas of communication skills, team leadership, etc. And I recently wrote a book and it's just been released. It's called um, The Unwritten Rules of Managing Up project management techniques from the trenches. And I should add in, I have been a project manager for decades, so got lots of in-the-trenches experience, and that's a lot of what we talk about in the book. Fantastic. We've been uh, chatting with Danielle about her agile transformation that she's been leading at Amex. Um, So again, you haven't missed too much. We'll just jump right in and and, um, we'll but we bounce back a little bit, so we'll come back to your topics a little bit. Just want to wrap up one thought here with Danielle on Portico. So you touched on that, right? There's a story to Portico, right? How did you come up with that name? So I came up with that name when I was um, walking through, you know, a old rundown abbey in, in Bury St. Edmunds in the UK. So it's, you know, it's one of those abbeys that Henry VIII's smashed to pieces when he divorced his wives. There's something, there's a moment there where you're walking through an archway and it's just absolutely beautiful. You walk through the archway and on the other side, it's just this absolutely gorgeous, you know, view and garden. And that's what we wanted to like portray with Portico as we're bringing it in, you know, for our customers is how do we make this beautiful entryway experience from, you know, a form field experience, which is usually not very pleasant, right? So how do we, how do we accomplish that? That's our goal is to make it feel super welcoming and beautiful. Yeah, I love the visual that you painted there for us. I can picture myself right walking through that and seeing on the other side. And of course, that's the goal with the transformation, right, is to come out on the other side. And Dana, you know, coming back to you a little bit now, trying to tie in a little bit of what we've been chatting about with this agile managing up and your book is all about being 
flexible, I'm guessing. Is there components of that and agile in the way to manage up? I can see a real close link between uh, how we can connect agile thoughts from a transformation into managing up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, managing up is all about truly being collaborative. A lot of times we talk about being collaborative, but we're not. It's pretty much the the senior executive or the, the team leader kind of barks orders and everyone kind of scurries around and tries to get it done, whether they believe in it or not, or whether they have questions or not. And in an agile environment, you can't afford to do that. I mean, if you see that we're about to run off a cliff or we're making a poor decision, you know, to me, agile is all about kind of stopping us in our tracks and said, hey, let's take another look at that because we don't want to waste, you know, two, three weeks or months on the project kind of going in the wrong direction. So I think that managing up is a critical component of it because, again, it's all about speaking truth to power, being honest, questioning when necessary, but, you know, really having that truly collaborative workplace environment. And and I guess there's probably different types of bosses you could have, which would require different types of communication to manage up, right? Certainly, certainly. And that that's a that's a big reason why I wrote the book, to be quite honest. This was never one of my topics that, you know, I said, hey, I want to talk about managing up. But what I found was I was speaking at all these different project management conferences and irrespective of the topic that I was talking about, I was always giving lots of techniques. And invariably, one of the very first questions I would always get is some flavor of, but what if my project sponsor is the problem? Or what if I can't get the client to, to buy into it? Or what if this senior level stakeholder is the one that's causing all the problems or they're not being supportive? And so as a result of that, I said, you know, I think there's something here. This is a huge pain area. And to your point, more specifically, there are lots of different flavors of these more difficult types of personality. In the book, I I highlight six that are pretty common, but I actually launched a survey before I wrote the book and I got almost 1,200 responses. And some of the responses were absolutely hilarious. I didn't even ask the question, but people gave me kind of monikers for their favorite type of difficult boss or difficult senior level stakeholder from the sloth to the snake to some some that are a little bit more common, the micromanager, the wishful thinker, the tornado. But certainly that's a difficulty is handling those tricky senior level personalities because, again, they're senior, so we need to be respectful um, and certainly we need to follow directions, but we want to do what's best for the project. So how do you navigate that kind of tricky tightrope? And I'm guessing, Danielle, in this transformation, you probably encountered, I won't call them sloths or snakes or tornadoes, <laughs> but but you, I'm sure you encountered similar challenges. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, you've got, you know, a group of 600 people you're bringing together to create Portico, um, you know, and, a, and leaders across many different areas. So absolutely the, the collaboration and the, the negotiation um, across a lot of different personalities, I think is is very common when you're trying to solve complex problems or you're trying to get a deal done or whatever it might be, right? So I think that that's very, very, uh, very applicable. I loved what she said about collaboration because I think that what it's really for us is about is that I'm trying to make, with Portico, I'm trying to make collaboration unavoidable. Right. Right. So, empower the teams. Right, right. Empower the teams, put them together in the same places to discuss things at the right cadence and the right times so that they they don't have any choice. They can't avoid it, right? So that's, and that's how you get to those quick decisions that Dana was, was talking about is that you get that information out on the table, you debate it, you get it decided and you move forward. Now, when, you, when you're doing that, uh, again, new to the organization, culturally, did you get resistance? People who didn't want to speak up, people who kind of crept back into the shadows and said, I'm going to watch this all play out before I actually add my two cents because they were afraid of repercussion. Absolutely. Right. I mean, that's, you know, there's there's the, the folks that like embrace this very readily and are ready to just kind of like they've been waiting for this moment. Right. But there's also the folks that just don't necessarily know what to make of this change. And they um, have been maybe through, you know, quite a few of these in the past in one one way or another. And they're trying to they're waiting to see, is this one going to stick? Mm. Right. Is this one really going to make the difference that is being, you know, put, that's being told to me? That yeah. it will make. Um, and so we could, had a lot of conversations with the teams and a lot of um, bringing them into to give 
feedback, right? So and retrospectives are a classic agile tool, right? So we sure. have lots of retrospectives. And we basically, you know, told them that you must speak up, that, you know, we, it was an obligation and not, you know, so that that's made a big difference, I think, in the teams is that they now know that if they speak something that they thought might have been disagreeable in the fa- in the past, that they're they're not going to have any repercussions. So it's just about reinforcing that behavior and allowing people to speak. And then if even if they say something that you don't like, you let them have that moment, right? And you listen to them and you, you know, you don't, you, you can't quell, you can't quell ideas or dissent because you need it in an agile environment. And Dana, trying to take that a little deeper and connecting it to your book, right? We're talking about within teams, having people speak up and speak their mind and get that out there. But when you're saying that to a boss, right. that's, that's, a, that's another level challenge. How did you deal with that in the book? Well, really, we can look at that from two different perspectives. I love what she was just talking about in terms of, you know, trying to build that. I call it a culture of candor where someone's willing to tell the boss they've got an ugly baby. I mean, nobody wants to tell the boss they've got an ugly baby. But unfortunately, sometimes if we don't, we end up on that dog project that we're all like pulling our hair out six six months from now. So I think it kind of goes both ways. In the book, one of the things I do talk about is from the leader's perspective, what are some some techniques, what are some things that you can do to try to build that culture of candor? And so she was just sharing an example that I think um, certainly is really helpful, but I would just re-emphasize and definitely piggyback on that to say, it's one thing to say it, hey, we want people to speak up, but sometimes you need some techniques. You need to do something demonstrative to really show them. Um, I had one team, for example, that we worked on and we actually had, we played, we called it playing devil's advocate. And there was a sheriff's badge that we would use. And whoever was wearing the sheriff's badge for that particular meeting, your job was to play devil's advocate. So no matter whose idea it was, your job a little bit was to kind of pick it apart or think about, well, what's the other side of it or why might it not work? And then we would just rotate that meeting after meeting. And after a while, we didn't need the badge anymore because we really realized that we truly did appreciate having that culture of candor. And then to answer your question on the flip side, if you've got that difficult boss, one of the techniques I talk about throughout the book is turning your statement into a question. So maybe it's not telling them you think it's a bad idea, but questioning some of the concerns or questioning some of the potential risks. So certainly that's a softer way to have that conversation. So wearing my sheriff's badge (laughs) and being devil's advocate, I say, but Man, I've had bosses that it just didn't matter, right? Some bosses just right. they just can't be managed. Right. Absolutely. And and thank you for that. I love that. Um, but absolutely. One of the things that I introduce um, in the book is called the DEFCON scale. I don't know if anybody out there is old enough like me. You remember War Games, Matthew Broderick and War Games, <laughs> where that was the first time I heard about the DEFCON scale, where DEFCON 5 means we're perfectly at peace. Everything's wonderful. But as you move to DEFCON 4 and then all the way down to DEFCON 1, that's like all out, you know, thermonuclear war. And so I think in work environments, it's kind of a similar sort of DEFCON scale. So part of your assessing which techniques are going to work and not work is also you're assessing the environment that you, you're in. So techniques that might work in a DEFCON 5 or 4 environment probably won't be enough in a DEFCON 3 or DEFCON 2 environment. And then God forbid, if you truly are in a DEFCON 1 environment, actually in the book, I say, close the book and put it down and call 911. I mean, literally, <laughs> if you're truly in a toxic, and there really are, I mean, we're laughing, but I mean, some of the, the feedback I got in my survey was heart-wrenching. I mean, people talking about bosses with substance abuse problems or, you know, being verbally abusive, physically abusive. Clearly, these are issues that are beyond the pale. You know, this book is not going to fix that. And so to your point, there are people, you know, we show up in the workplace as a whole person, who we are, a cumulative result of our life experience. And unfortunately, some of us come pretty damaged and some leaders are pretty damaged. And unfortunately, some of that spills over. So certainly one of the things you don't want to do is twist yourself into a pretzel trying to manage or satisfy or satiate some who's abusive, who truly creates a toxic environment. So part of what needs to be done in that case is knowing when to move on and knowing when it's not a fit. 
one of the most important things, right, is to choose your boss. Yeah. Sure. Well, and then, right, there's the the ever popular meme that's on LinkedIn and other social media all the time of people don't leave their job, uh, jobs, right. they leave their bosses. And again, I don't know if there's any data to support that or not, but I know uh, there's been many uh, prior experiences I've had where I was having a challenge with a boss and I was transferred or moved into a different role and it wasn't the company that was the problem. So I think there's probably some truth. I don't, again, Dana, I don't know if you have supporting evidence on that, but uh, certainly seems like having a good boss is outweighs having a good company, right? Absolutely. I've certainly heard that that data as well, that, it, that the boss that you have makes all the difference. And the great news with that is if you have a great boss, and there are tons of great bosses out there, they can have a huge benefit for you. And so um, great bosses can really build you, build your, your self-esteem, your confidence, um, put you on that, that positive career path. So certainly they can make a huge difference. All right. So switching gears slightly uh, back to Danielle, we were chatting a little bit before the show about something new here in Phoenix, a Phoenix chapter of women in product. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we just had our, our first event a couple of weeks ago at the GoDaddy offices and uh, Tara Wellington and, and myself are the, the co-founders for this new group in Phoenix of women in product. Women in product was started, you know, several years ago now in in the Bay Area. Um, and now there's just chapters all over the country. And so Phoenix is very excited to have um, one of the newest chapters started. And we have a um, Slack channel for anyone who might want to join us, which is wipphoenix.slack.com. Um, so if they want to just go on Slack and join in there and join the conversation and join on all the information on upcoming events, um, we'd love to have grow the community and really have a powerful community of women in product here in Phoenix. That's awesome. For me, who isn't as familiar with the product side, what's help us explain the benefit of being a part of this organization? Obviously, it sounds like there's tremendous value, but I, I'm just not familiar with it. So share with our audience what we can get a little more information about it. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, we you know share a lot of best practices around um, product management just holistically and like, you know, what are the skills that you need? What are, you know, that we even have, you know, a table at the event, which is about breaking into product if you're interested in, in the role. So just those types of things. And then there's also just a lot of great networking across the, the different uh, companies in the, in the Valley and that actually, you know, have product management mm -hmm. and uh, just an opportunity for women to get together, um, you know, uh, product and engineering can be both a very male dominant, male dominated fields. And so just having some, you know, a community to, to talk to about, okay, well, what do I do in this situation? How should I approach that? And having that, that sounding board of, of women um, is just a really powerful thing. Yeah, I love that. And we, um, in the project management space, I think it's male-dominated as well. We have an upcoming guest in May, I believe, Elise Stevens from Australia. This will be our first live Australia guest we'll be having in May. Uh, she right now has an effort underway called Hashtag Celebrating Women in Project Management. And she's featuring two women from across the globe each day in their achievements in project management. So it's great to see another organization such as Women in Product uh, that's out there celebrating the service and, and good that women bring in, in these male-dominated industries and professions. Uh, there's so much diversity that we're missing out on that we need to embrace what the obviously female uh, leaders can bring to us. So I'm looking forward to talking with her and so pleased, obviously, to hear that we're doing more of that here locally in Phoenix as well. And by the way, I think I've recommended to Elise that she reach out to both of you to connect to to talk a little bit about the celebrating women in project management. So who knows? Maybe you guys will be featured uh, in with Elise as well. Great, we'd love to talk more about it. Sure, and I've seen it on LinkedIn. Looks wonderful. So, uh, Dana, I'm wondering. You've obviously you wrote this book. You're uh, international speaker, featured in publications all over the the U.S. and the world. And you, you get asked these questions that lead to this book. But taking the book into practice, you're, you're talking about techniques. What are some of the experiences that you've had managing projects and leading projects that you wish you had this book when you were the project manager as opposed to now being the author of the book? <laughs> 
Yeah, actually, I, I get that question a lot after speaking events. People will often come up to me and say, God, this was wonderful, but I wish I had this like six months ago, or I wish I had this two years ago. So I, I think it's better to, to have some exposure sooner rather than later. But in answer to your question, some of the skills, I think that, of, of course, number one, relationship skills. Um, one of the, the talks that I give, I talk about balancing task and relationship and how the most effective project managers out there, the most effective leaders out there are strong on task, but also strong on relationship. And what I've tended to see anecdotally is a lot of times, a lot of project managers, particularly in the IT space, have more of those that task side, but they don't have that that EQ, that that relationship side as much. And so they have to work at that. And so for me, I mean, if I could have bought EQ early in my career, heck, if I could buy it right now, I absolutely would. And so just understanding and acknowledging the importance of that um, and realizing that it's not always just about on time, on budget, and who has the prettiest, shiniest Gantt chart, um, but it really is about being able to work effectively with people, being able to connect with a wide range of different personalities. So I would absolutely say building and developing those relationship skills, it's something that I wish that I had done a lot sooner in my career. And what I love about today's show is we have somebody that's very agile focused, somebody who's more, it sounds at least traditionally project management focused. We both are delivery minded, right? There's different techniques you use to deliver, but we're all focused on delivery. So you've both been mentioning similar challenges and there's this competing agile versus waterfall mentality in the world. But really it's all about which tool do we use at the right time to be able to deliver so I'm assuming, right, Danielle, during your transformation process, there were different skills and techniques to fall back on uh, outside of just traditional agile. Can you share some of those experiences? Oh, absolutely. So I think that, you know, you have to, when you're thinking about agile versus waterfall, I think you really need to, like you said, as a tool. And you want to use the right tool for the right situation. Um, so, for example, we had to think very carefully about, okay, well, what agile practices do we actually apply when we're talking about doing work in mainframe environments, right? It doesn't lend itself extremely well to a agile type of process. You can do it, but there's still some, you know, aspects of what, you know, we lovingly call fragile there. Yeah. Right? Um, so it's, and that's just because of the nature of the system. So it's kind of like you have to determine, like, what will your systems support? And if your test environments, for example, are not set up, to really be, you know, end to end, for example, um, then you're often going to have some challenges in really bringing agile to full fruition, right? So you just have to kind of what what do you have? What systems do you have? What situation do you have? And which tools are going to apply best in what situation? Yeah, I remember back when Dimitri was on the show, he had said, "Listen, if someone's building my house, I don't want them doing it agile." Right. <laughs> So it absolutely, it totally makes sense with the mainframe component. And, and Dana, I'm wondering, you know, from the project management trenches, you know, I love the, the visual that you supply with that. What's kind of the number one thing that you pull out of the trenches that you want to be able to share with everybody in your book or otherwise, right, about how to be an effective project management leader? Hmm, that's a good question. How to be an effective project management leader. Well, I think that some of my my last response comes to mind and maybe bringing it back to a word that I used at the very beginning, which is collaborate. I think that finding ways to weave in the task component and the relationship component in almost everything that you do is a key to success. And one of the biggest mistakes that I find that people make is they'll listen to a podcast or watch a webinar and they'll say, oh yeah, that relationship stuff, I know that's important, but um, I don't really have time for that. Or they'll maybe go overboard and say, well, let's all build a habitat house or something. And they feel like, well, I've kind of checked that box. I don't have to worry about that for another three months. But what I've found is 
that sort of mentality and that sort of attitude isn't nearly as effective as truly thinking about on a day-to-day basis, how do I build the relationship element into the task? So for example, maybe instead of assigning a task to one person, there's a lead and then there's a backup. And so there's a selfish component in that, meaning I have a natural backup for a lot of these key tasks or maybe my critical path tasks. But then there's also this relationship component in it where maybe I have, I'm kind of breaking up clicks at the same time. So I have maybe two people who may may not traditionally um, work together well or may not know each other well, et cetera, but because they're working on this task together or because they're co-located together in the war room, they start to build this relationship element. So that's one of the things that I work with with teams a lot is figuring out how can we infuse this relationship element into the task so that we truly, truly do have a collaborative team. And one point that I want to make on that, it's not, and this is a mistake that I think that a lot of, a lot of project managers make, they think that it's about trying to make people best friends. It's not about the fact that, okay, we want to be like skipping together in the mall on the weekends or braiding each other's hair, having sleepovers. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about forcing friendship. What we're talking about is building a truly collaborative environment where people truly do trust one another. And one of the sayings, I know they talk about it in the sales environment a lot, is the progression is know me, like me, trust me. It's hard to trust a person you don't fundamentally like, and it's hard to like a person that you don't really know. So when we talk about some of these things that might seem kind of silly or not as important in terms of breaking the ice and getting people to know each other better and and making connections, it truly is about trying to build that trust. And I challenge you to find a high-performing team with low trust. They just don't go together. So for me, I would say if I had to pick one thing, I think that would be the heart of it. And I do think that one of the keys to that is getting, you know, individuals to realize, you know, that they're a part of a bigger whole and that they need to bring people with them and they're part of a team. Um, sometimes it's very easy to, to, to get siloed into your own tasks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, particularly at the, you know, the, the individual contributor level. Um, so I think giving them visibility into like, so for Portico, when we're talking about customer, so giving them visibility in what role do you play in delivering for a customer? And what does the role the person sitting next to you play in delivering for the customer? Then they have that ability to kind of step away from themselves and see the greater the greater sum of the parts. Um, and then that point in time, I think they their mindset shifts so that they can be more collaborative. And they can then create that teamwork. But until you have that kind of moment, they'll continue to to live in that silo and work in that silo. Yeah, and I, it, you know, that align at the beginning, I had talked about the purpose driven PMO that we offer as as one of our services with the PMO squad, and that's what it's all about. Is if you don't have a purpose defined as to why you're doing the work, we too often as PMO leaders are thinking about the project management office as opposed to the purpose of what we're doing, the measure, are we doing it, and then optimizing. Because as soon as we rally around purpose, we then identify why we're doing this, and collectively we build teams to go achieve, right? Uh, So it sounds like you did a fantastic job at that, probably with some struggle, but at Amex on this agile transformation, it's what you were doing, right? Rally around Portico, create the purpose as to what you're doing. I also, through all of these discussions with all guests we've had on the past, I find that with our children and through youth sports and youth activities, we teach everybody teamwork. We teach about going out and stretching our boundaries, right, and getting out there. But then when we become professionals, we back away from those things. And there's an expectation that you just know how to do it. So it's great to hear both of you talk about bringing folks back together in team environments and collaborative environments to try to make progress towards common goals. So to me, that's, it's always great discussion to hear those sorts of uh, challenges and and outcomes that we get. Dana, I wanted to jump back a little bit to the different types of bosses. Uh, You had mentioned uh, in your book, you have different types of bosses. What's the clueless chameleon type? Okay. Well, the Clueless Chameleon is one of my favorite. This is one that was uh, very popular in, in my survey. A lot of people could could relate to the Clueless Chameleon. This is the type of boss 
that is kind of not really sure what they're looking for, but they're still going to hold you responsible at the end if you don't deliver it. Um, They're kind of looking for you to be a mind reader because either they tell you one thing one week and then by the next week they've told you something different or they forget what they told you before or they keep moving the goalpost. I I feel like working for the Clueless Chameleon is like playing a perpetual game of mental scavenger hunt. So it's like you kind of can't pin them down. And part of the reason why you can't pin them down is oftentimes, and this is kind of a unspoken secret, a lot of times bosses don't really know what they want. You know, they might have some vague idea. They might say, okay, let's put together even something that should be as specific, maybe as like a requirements document or a slightly more vague uh, term might be a business plan, something like that, a marketing plan, a communications plan. These all sound great, but I promise you, if I throw that out there and you've got all these listeners, what one person is thinking is probably very different from what someone else is thinking. And sometimes they don't know what they want until you go off for three weeks and work on it and come back and show you show, show them what you've got. And then they say, well, I don't know what I want, but I know it's not that. So that's really what the clueless chameleon is. It's really difficult to pin them down because they either keep changing their mind or they're just fundamentally not clear on exactly what they're looking for. I'd love to see the responses you got back. Like in my mind, and maybe this is horrible. I say this, but it, it sounds like husband. I can relate to several conversations where I think I may have been the clueless chameleon at home unintentionally, of course, but, uh, you know, well, I, I will say this though. I think almost all of us have some of these type tendencies in us. So one of the things that I wanted to definitely try to do in the book and I do when I speak to groups is not separate myself. I mean, part of the reason why I feel like I could write it with authority is I feel like I've been every one of these personalities at one point or another. So I definitely I don't want to castigate these types, but just more so highlight them so that maybe we can also when we're the project manager or we're the project sponsor, maybe we can recognize when some of these style characteristics are coming out in ourselves. Because I agree with where you're going with that. I mean, sometimes we've been the clueless chameleon ourselves. Well, I would ask a question of anyone who thinks they they have a boss who's a clueless chameleon, right? Um, Which would be, are you asking them questions? Yeah. Right. Because I think that, you know, I I think back to like early on in my career when maybe I might have thought my boss was a clueless chameleon. And I look back and I think, oh, well, you know, I had some responsibility there. Like I I needed to ask more questions to understand what they wanted. So I want to make sure that like I don't like I think that's probably true with all the boss types in your book. Um, But it's like, you know, people do need to ask themselves some questions about is that really true or is there something I can do to make it better? I'm I'm really glad you said that because I think the personal responsibility component in this is huge and almost can't be overstated. So one of the things that I talk about is I say, you know, difficult is is really in the eye of the beholder. And I think I even put difficult in quotes, like for for a good bit of the book. And I said, and one of the the tests that I put in there is that, well, you know, if most of your bosses and your mind have been difficult, then maybe you're really the difficult one. You know, maybe the problem <laughs> more so live. So I, I completely um, am glad that you brought that up because I do definitely think it's about collaboration. It's a two-way street. The victim thinking is a problem. And, and I, I go back through personal experiences, right? At, at some point early in my career, I made a conversion from having a job to having a career. And back when I was having a job, victim thinking was was okay because I didn't I didn't need to have more. But when I transferred my thought process into having more of a career and being a leader, then it was I I love what you said there, Danielle, about asking questions, right? Because getting to the point and understanding it better helps. So yeah, I, again, I think regardless of your profession, the book probably fits not even just for project management, but just for all employees. I love what you said yeah. about questions. I think that, you know, that's the number one piece of advice I give to anyone who starts um, in my team and they ask me, like, what should I, what should I do? They're new, new in the team. I say, ask a lot of questions. Ask the stupid question because often the stupid question is the one that other people are afraid to ask. And actually, they all want to know the answer as well. Yeah. Right. right. So, um, so I think that that's, you know, to me, that's a really key piece of advice I'd give to anyone listening who is, who is starting their career. 
ask a lot of questions. Yeah. And just to piggyback on that, I would say certainly ask a ton of questions. In fact, I've got this activity that I do sometimes with groups where there's a sender and a receiver and one person uh, uh, describes an image to someone else and they have to draw it. And I split the group in half. Half the group can ask questions and half the group can't. And then at the end, I mean, you can imagine the difference in what these pictures look like. I mean, it's like night and day. The people who didn't ask any questions, um, it just looks nothing like what it's supposed to. But then the flip side of that, I think from the leader's perspective, is are you creating an environment where it's okay to question? Because it's easy to tell people to ask questions, but then I've certainly seen a lot of environments where people learn really quickly that they're not safe, that it's not necessarily a safe environment to ask questions. So it's great when you have that type of boss, like like you were, who says that right up front, hey, ask questions, point out concerns. Um, if I have an idea and you think maybe it's not a great one, I certainly want want to hear about it. But I do think there's that leader responsibility that says, what are you doing demonstrably to try to create that environment that does encourage questioning? Because the sad reality is most environments don't really encourage questions. And that's sad because it it really works to the detriment of, of the organization. You know, I want to, this is a great conversation. And what I think it's practical, right? People can use this discussion to be able to make improvements. But I wanted, I, I, we get a bio on everybody before the show. So there was something in Danielle's bio that I had no knowledge of. So I, I just feel compelled to ask this question. What are Wes Anderson's films? I don't know who Wes Anderson is. <laughs> so Wes Anderson um, is the creator of The Royal Tenenbaums, Dog Isle, um, which is, I think is the most recent one. Our Isle of Dogs is, is what it's called. And my personal favorite is Moonrise Kingdom. And he, he does a lot of very stylistically interesting films. Uh, the Budapest Hotel some Royal Budapest Hotel doesn't Not sound familiar. The real ton of bombs that one um, I, I remember. But those those are all of his films, and he, he they're usually slightly dark comedies um, with a lot of unusual flair, um, and I find them fascinating. Well, that's great because now we have good insight into you, right? It helps us understand that better. Now, all right, so back to agile transformation after that side road we just went down. Transformation, right? Portico is your there's a destination, right? So has Amex reached the other side of the portico, or are you still on the journey? What, where are you at now? We are still very much on the agile journey, and I don't think it ever ends because um, the idea is that you should be always, you know, doing retrospectives and adapting what mm-hmm. you're doing and improving it ongoingly. So I don't; it shouldn't ever end. Um, but we're still we're still going through the the process where, in various different areas, we use agile terminology, but we don't necessarily. It's you know. It's law versus spirit, I would say, is kind of. Um, so we're still in, in various areas and different levels of maturity on Agile, but we are definitely very far down that road and, and we continue to, to move down that road. And how long has have you been on the journey so far? We've been on the journey for four years. Okay. So again, practical knowledge for folks out there. And of course, not every company is as large as American Express. You know, the the Titanic hit the iceberg because it was too big to avoid it, right? A lot of organizations, which are smaller, probably wouldn't take four years on an agile journey, but stay with it, right? Stay the course and, and fight the good fight. Yeah, and often you're just, you know, the agile journey is, you know, not just a factor of the culture of the organization and that change, but it's also a factor of the systems that have been built over a very long period of time um, that weren't built in that agile fashion. So you have to kind of use uh, some of the agile transformation in actually, you know, in evolving your environments. Um, and that's the kind of stuff that takes time. So we are coming up on our time. And again, thanks to our listeners out there for uh, hanging in with us as we had a rough start getting Dana on board. But we're glad that she was able to join us. Dana, I want to give you a moment to just tell our listeners how they can be in touch with you if they want to learn more about you and professionalism matters or where they can get your book a little more about the book just your opportunity here to speak to the audience and let them know where they can learn more about you 
Sure. Well, again, my apologies for for patching in late, um, but I'm so glad I was able to come on and just share a little bit with your listeners. So please feel free to reach out to me. Probably the best way is through LinkedIn. I'm I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I also have a a column on on Forbes.com. So I try to post there fairly regularly. The book is available at Amazon. And also for your listeners, I would love to offer kind of a giveaway, a PDF, which is a nice little cheat sheet. In fact, I I tend to reference it myself. It has six different types of difficult boss, the coolest chameleon, the missing in action boss, meddlesome micromanager, wishful thinker, the tornado, and the naked emperor. And it's like a quick handy front and back PDF that has specific techniques, like four to six techniques that you can use to try to manage up and better support, collaborate with that particular type of difficult boss. So for anyone who can send me or message me a uh, proof of purchase um, via LinkedIn, I am more than happy to send you a PDF of this little handy sheet that you can use as a quick reference guide for tips for managing difficult bosses. So again, thanks so much for for having me. It's our uh, pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for being able to join us. Danielle, same for you. Last opportunity here to to share with the audience ways they can get in touch with you or women in product here locally as well. Yeah, the, yeah, the women in product Phoenix Slack channel, um, and they also LinkedIn is a great place to to get a hold of me. I'm the only Danielle Crop, with spelled C R O P. So um, if you search for me, you're going to find me. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story with us. It's been awesome. Uh, again, for the listeners, just want to remind everybody that in partnership with Vets to PM and IIL, we are now giving veterans free access to the Learning and IIL's Leadership and Innovation 2019 online conference that runs from today through June 19th. That's $189 value that's completely free to veterans. So please go out to IIL.com. Register using the code VETMENT, V-E-T-M-E-N-T. And for our non-veterans, you can get a $20 discount as well by using VETSIIL as a discount code, V-E-T-S-I-I-L. So obviously want to thank uh, Danielle and Dana for joining us today. It's been fantastic conversation and practical application of some skills that I think listeners really will benefit from. Also want to remind everybody that we are live the first and third Thursday each month at 11 a.m. here in Phoenix. Our next show will be on the 21st of March with Ruth Pierce and Michael Donnelly. So we're really looking forward to hearing from Ruth and Michael. And a reminder that the shows are recorded. So if you can't catch us live, please be sure to subscribe to Project Management Office Hours podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, Spotify, whatever your podcast platform of choice is, we're on all of them. Certainly thank you to our sponsors, the PMO Squad again, home of the purpose-driven PMO. Forget Project Management Office. It's all about purpose, measure, and optimize. That's it for now. Office hours are closed. Until next time, I'm PMO Joe, and you've been listening to Project Management Office Hours. (laughs) 